The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Which have been uh, in the headlines. Uh, you can't have failed to have uh, observed or noticed the death and destruction that happening uh, in Indonesia because of a tsunami. Inshallah, we'll have representatives from the government of Indonesia, inshallah. Uh, to talk about uh, what is happening and what the situation is at the moment from Indonesia. A uh, couple of weeks ago, we talked about Article 35A. What is Article 35A? Uh, we're going to uh, to repeat that again today or re- rerun the program today uh, because uh, the, the program we did a couple of weeks ago didn't do justice to the seriousness of the implications of Article 35A. Inshallah, we'll cover that. And again, you may not have, uh, or may may not have failed to notice the fact that the Conservative Party were at a conference this week. There's loads of stuff about Brexit and parties backstabbing and leadership challenges, etc. But we're going to take a slightly different angle. So join us uh, around about seven o'clock, Inshallah, where we'll talk about the takeaways uh, from the Conservative, Conservative Party conference. Uh, and also, again, uh, if you've been following and listening to Inspire FM, uh, you would know that uh, this is uh, the Parenting Week. Uh, this is a, a series of theme programs on Inspire FM that we're doing. And this week we're focusing on parenting, inshallah. And we'll have somebody here in the studio uh, talking about parenting and challenges of parenting. But first, uh, I want to talk about a very, very serious topic, uh, and that topic uh, is around the destruction uh, and the death, deaths caused by the tsunami in Indonesia. You must, you must, you must have seen pictures and images, etc., on TV. What we want to do today, uh, officially also, is launch the Inspire FM uh, campaign to raise funds, inshallah, for, for uh, the disaster. Uh, but before we do that, we wanted to get a, a quick update on the situation from a representative of the government of Indonesia, uh, and I have on uh, on the line with me today, inshallah, is, is uh, Maradona Rothaku, who is the first secretary for uh, the, uh, uh, the diplomacy and press press and social uh, cultural affairs department of the uh, embassy in London. Uh, hello, assalamualaikum. Uh, well, welcome to Inspire FM. Uh, thank you for joining us thank today. Uh, uh, and I guess uh, uh, what we want want to hear from yourselves really is is uh, what is the latest? What's the latest situation uh, uh, in in uh, in Palu in the Sulawesi island where the tsunami took place? Well, thank you very much, Mr. Uh, first of all, if I may. Um, uh, also convey that we are deeply saddened by the tragic disaster and uh, Absolutely. we certainly pray that God grant eternal rest to those who died and grant courage and consolation to the brief family and all the people who have suffered injury and destruction. I mean, I mean, yeah, absolutely, yes. And, uh, and if I may add a little bit to that, uh, we, the government of the Republic of Indonesia would like to express our deepest gratitude for the sympathy and assistance Provided by the international community, including from the people and the government of the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. as a response to help the survivors of the earthquake and the tsunami in Palu and Dongala. Sure, sure. So, so if you could perhaps give us what the latest situation is is on the ground. Uh, we see lots of pictures. We see pictures of 
you know, whole towns demolished. Uh, we see pictures of, of bodies being uh, dug up and ex- excavated from, from rubble left behind by the sure. tsunami. Uh, t- tell us what the latest situation is and tell us, first of all, what the government is doing about it. Absolutely. Well, uh, as of today, the National Agency for Disaster Management has recorded the death toll uh, reach 1,571. Okay. Uh, and um, the, the coordinated efforts for emergency response are still uh, taking place at this stage to evacuate the victims. We also record uh, around 113 missing uh, people and around 152 uh, lives are still uh, could not be found and there's, uh, there's still uh, uh, scattered uh, Sure. Uh, in in the in the yeah in the, the disaster areas. Sure. Okay. So so tell tell us. I mean, there, there's some discussion about the fact that uh, there was a bit of delay in the government actually responding. Can you clarify that for us? Was there a delay? Did the government not respond quickly enough uh, to the disaster? Oh, I I would uh, think that would be a false uh, statement because the Indonesian government, like I said has uh, continued to undertake uh, coordinated efforts for emergency response, mm-hmm. which at this stage will be uh, focusing, like I said, to evacuate the victims and uh, to prioritize uh, in providing um, uh, the clean water supply, sanitation, and basic needs to improve the livelihood and the well-being of the, of the, of the victims, to uh, restore the infrastructure, electricity, and communication. Mm-hmm. Um, due to the heavy damages, uh, and uh, until today, uh, as you may also be aware that uh, uh, our president, uh, His Excellency President Joko Widodo, has arrived at the, uh, at the location uh, two days right after the, the accident. And up until today, we, the government has deployed uh, some uh, 67,000 officers on the ground, mm-hmm. including around uh, uh, 855 uh, medical uh, officers uh, that are taking care of the victims. Sure. Okay. So uh, I guess that part of the world, um, uh, I guess geologically unstable as it is, um, you know, what what I guess arrangement has the government of Indonesia made to ensure that that people are warned first of all of of the impending disaster uh, and to assist in in building infrastructure which c- could stand up to these kind of things. Well, it's, it's, it's quite difficult because uh, Indonesia has a fair share of uh, a number of uh, natural disasters. Sure. And the government has uh, been doing uh, everything in its power to mitigate uh, these um, disasters, some that you could uh, never uh, foresee uh, it's coming. But uh, it's, it's definitely outlined in the, in the national master plan to uh, enforce the uh, the uh, early warning, especially for a tsunami and and uh, and uh, earthquake, and we combine that uh, certainly with the local wisdom of the people, sure. so that uh, in, that we can uh, mitigate uh, uh, the. Uh, so do do you uh, do you think that that the measures that you have taken uh, have helped in reducing the death toll? Absolutely, absolutely. Right. I okay. Have, yeah. yeah but, but there is talk, uh, at least some reports, to suggest that um, the uh, the early warning system 
um, the tsunami warning system didn't actually function, didn't warn people. Is that a report true or? Well, yeah, we have uh, we have to be uh, also um, uh, uh, we have to be uh, we need to actually work together with the local government. Uh, sure. We we realize that uh, the uh, tsunami buoys that uh, that are uh, in place. Sure. Uh, we have 22 of them uh, across Indonesia, sure. and some of them have been. Uh, uh, ruins, uh, for example, by vandalism, sure. or okay. uh, uh, yeah, or, or the maintenance of the, uh, of the of the machineries or, or the technology that are in place. But uh, uh, we certainly are t- uh, taking into account all these um, uh, all these aspects for uh, future. Um, um, sure. Okay, so in in terms of uh, I I noticed that uh, in the UK that the disasters emergency committee has announced uh, an appeal an urgent appeal for help. Uh, what what is your message to the population of UK in general and then the Muslim community in particular uh, to whom we are actually broadcasting to? Um, what is your message to them? What sort of help do you need? Uh, well, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, like I said uh, earlier, as I've mentioned, that we express our deepest gratitude, especially for the government and the people of the United Kingdom sure. uh, in responding to help the survivors. And we are touched by your sympathy and emergency relief assistance provided by the UK government sure. that were delivered uh, uh, in time and very useful uh, in helping us in the midst of this difficult situation. And uh, we... Uh, for uh, those of you who are uh, touched uh, and would like to uh, contribute in any way, uh, you may uh, adjust your donations mm-hmm. uh, to the Indonesian Red Cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the information are uh, we provide informations on the social media platforms of the Indonesian Embassy sure. on the Facebook and on the on the Twitter as well as Instagram. Uh, feel free to. Uh, Look at the details of uh, some of the organizations that are endorsed by the government, sure. in particular for uh, the Indonesian Red Cross. Sure. Okay. So I, I guess in terms of um, uh, you are likely to, I think the, the Muslim population is very generous within the UK and the rest of the world. You are likely to get a large number, uh, large sort of volume of donations coming through. Uh, I, I guess the, what, what's I guess what's always top of people's mind is that. There is mechanisms for delivery on the ground uh, from the donations that are given. A lot of times, I think people express their their sorrow uh, and and their their connections uh, with our brothers and sisters in in Indonesia. Uh, but we also like to know that they're actually going to b- benefit. So, what arrangements have you in place to ensure that would happen? Well, uh, in terms of the uh, uh, government assistance, we uh, we have. Uh, uh, arrange uh, uh, almost uh, more than two dozen countries that have provided uh, what we uh, kind uh, we what we urgently need uh, uh, for uh, infrastructure. For example, air transportation, tent, water treatment, electrical generator, field hospital, sure. and uh, and other uh, uh, devices that we need, but. Uh, uh, as uh, in terms of the uh, uh, individual donation, uh, you, you certainly can address it to the donation that cost because uh, it is the it is the uh, government body that uh, that will uh, 
that uh, can certainly channel all the all the uh, the, the international donations uh, directly to the uh, victims in Palu and Dongala. Right. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. Maradona, for taking your time out today and and uh, explaining the situation to us. Uh, uh, hopefully, inshallah. Uh, we will get the message yes, across and, and, and people will support you and your country as much as they can. Shukriya. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Right, okay, we, we're going to carry on with that uh, that topic and, and we have uh, on the ground today uh, a representatives from Islamic Relief uh, who, is, um, who is Mr. Zia, Zia Silk um, and he is the country manager uh, for uh, Islamic Relief in, in Indonesia. Assalamu alaikum. Do we have you on air? Assalamu alaikum, Zia. Waalaikumsalam. Uh, okay, so uh, just, just, I'm uh, just speaking to uh, the representative of the embassy of, of Indonesia in London just now, and he's explained to me the yeah. situation. Uh, and and I guess he he's explained to me the situation from a government perspective. I, I just wanted to hear something, I guess, from. Uh, from the ground, uh, do you have people on the ground, and what's the situation? And are people basically fearing up to, um, I, I guess, sleeping outside and and uh, living in tents, etc.? What, what's the situation? Can you, can you tell us? Yeah. So, um, Islamic Relief teams in Indonesia were given the news on the 28th of September that a large tsunami had hit Palu and Dongala, and um, we were able to dispatch the team immediately. Uh, to go to the affected area, but of course, as you just heard from the embassy, um, with regards to the destruction of infrastructure with roads and bridges and so on, um, it was actually, uh, the, the airport was shut down in Palu itself, so um, the team had to fly to another city on the Sulawesi Island and drive up to 20 hours to get there. Um, but alhamdulillah, they've been there for about four, four days now, and um, uh, the initial uh, support that we were able to provide was assistance with actually moving the bodies of those that have passed away to burial sites to uh, lay them to rest, but also to stop the spread of disease. Um, and then from then, it's been a case of um, prioritizing the distribution of food and water because uh, you, everybody has probably seen the images so far. Uh, of uh, what's happened in, in this area, and most of the houses and buildings have been destroyed, and, and a lot of people, uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people have been displaced and don't have access to food and water. Many families, um, even now, although we've reached several hundred families with the, with the uh, food and water that we initially took, there are still hundreds of thousands of people that are waiting, and many of them haven't had food for several days and are drinking contaminated water. So provision of food and clean drinking water is absolutely crucial at this point in time. Uh, and then, of course, uh, as you just mentioned, uh, with regards to shelter, um, as they've lost their homes, we're providing families with tarpaulin uh, so that they can cre uh, create temporary shelter for now. Uh, of course, in the long term, there'll be a rebuilding phase, but right now it's a case of just get, getting them through the emergency phase. Access to the area is extremely difficult, so uh, a journey of three hours um, from Momojo, where we normally procure all of the um, items, uh, is now taking well over 10 to 12 hours to get there because of the roads and the landslides and the detours that the team are having to take. 
Mm-hmm. Alhamdulillah, yesterday we were able to distribute around two tons of rice um, uh, to families that are in need of food, and then a further 37 tons of rice has been procured and is on its way for distribution as we speak. So um, we are reaching those families, but of course the need is great and the support is much needed, especially from the community in the UK. Yeah, t- touch on, on the, the, the destruction. I've seen some pictures, and I think yesterday there were some reports from uh, one of the towns, or small uh, small towns, completely destroyed. Um, but the reports were suggesting that the loss of life uh, w- was basically avoided because people were kind of expecting, uh, you know, the tsunami to happen after the earthquake, and they actually fled up into the hills. Uh, tell tell us a little bit more on the scale of destruction, and I guess also on on the lives lost. Uh, you know, was 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 the population prepared? So when the earthquake happened, um, a warning was uh, sent to the people, and some people did move, but a lot of people didn't. Um, so although uh, you know a warning system was in place and um, uh, an alert was sent out, a lot of people were unable to get out of the way. And as you uh, you probably heard so far, over 1,500 people have been confirmed dead, and um, and there are over another 1,500 people that are at the moment reported missing um so these are people that have not been accounted for that loved ones and family members have reported missing um there is in the in the buildings that have collapsed and that are being cleared right now using bulldozers and and um, support from the military uh, there is a clear smell of um you know decaying bodies so we know that there are, there are people still uh, under the rubble that we've not been able to get to. Yeah, death toll is likely to rise uh, once once the people actually get to there and, and uh, assess the situation. So well, one last question. I've got exactly. Khalid from, from Muslim Aid. He, he's on the ground as well. I uh, just want to get his view. Uh, but but in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of your operations in the country, uh, are you working with, with the local NGO or do you have your own operations within Indonesia? So Islamic Relief has been working in Indonesia for many years, so we have our own team here. Um, in, in Palu itself, we are both our own Islamic Relief um, staff members are there distributing aid, but we're also working with several partners that um, are supporting as well. But um, we do have our own team and we are delivering aid to our own team as well. Sure, and, and I think you, you're part of DEC as well, aren't you? You're part of the, the DEC organization, the Disasters Emergency Com- uh, Committee. Yeah, so we're, we're a member of the Disaster Emergency Committee, which launched this appeal um, uh, yesterday. And um, so far, alhamdulillah, uh, over £6 million has been raised since that appeal was launched. And hopefully that will reach, uh, you know, make a difference to the people that are affected. But as I mentioned, over 200,000 people are in need of emergency assistance. So there's a long way to go and a huge need still in place. So do, do, do you actually collaborate with, with uh, the delivery of aid through DEC? Or what, how, what does DEC do? Just collect money or is it a delivery agency? So the DEC is an umbrella organization for the main, uh, the largest uh, charities within the UK. There are 13 members of the DEC who uh, basically collectively launch an appeal and we use the uh, partnerships that we have with the main broadcasters to bring awareness and really put the light on disasters like this. Um, so it's the DEC mainly is a uh, fundraising initiative um, mm-hmm. and the delivery is done through the partners. So the money that is raised is then distributed uh, among 
amongst the DEC partners to then deliver on the ground based on the team that is available and the infrastructure. So as, a, as an organization that has a large infrastructure within Indonesia and as a team on the ground, uh, we will be uh, a recipient of that funding, which uh, the UK government has also um, agreed to match fund donations that are given to the DEC appeal. Okay, All right, just, just one final question. Uh, which, which may be a little bit technical, and I'll understand if you if you if you uh, wish not to answer. Uh, but if I if I was to make a, want to make a donation, and my donation is zakat, um, uh, you know, yeah. if I was to make that donation through deck, uh, what would your advice be, or should we come through one of the Muslim sort of partners? I think if you are if you are donating um, zakat, I would uh, suggest that you give it to uh, through. A uh, one of the Muslim charities, Islamic Faith, obviously has the zakat pots. Um, off the top of my head, the DEC uh, donate uh, website. I, I'm not sure if they have a zakat option on their donate page. Um, but if they do, then they will also deliver according to the zakat policies. Right. Uh, but uh, right now, I would advise you to donate to uh, a Muslim charity. Right. Tazakallah Hadziya. Thanks for for the update. Uh, alaikum. No problem. Right, so so we also have Khalid, who who uh, our very own Khalid, I, would, I should say, he's been around Inspire Film Studios many times, but he's now uh, actually in Indonesia uh, at the moment and he's working for Muslim Aid. Assalamu alaikum, Khalid. Alhamdulillah, yourself? Alhamdulillah, very good. Can, can you tell us where you are at this precise moment uh, and, and just give us an update on what you're seeing? Um, okay, I'm now in the island, uh, the island that was affected uh, by tsunami. Uh, it's called uh, Solisi. Yeah. I'm here currently in uh, in a small town, really small, called uh, Makassar. Um, and obviously, the, the main destruction happened in the city of Palo and the other cities surrounding it. The cities have completely been destroyed. But today, here in, in uh, Makassar, We've seen many um, um, uh, IDPs as internal displaced uh, persons who fled uh, Palu and other cities. Those who survived, we've seen some shocking, um, uh, some shocking uh, information coming through. We saw people with uh, terror in their eyes, and people have been um, have been away from their families and just being united with their families. People who have not had access, no food, no water, and of course they have no shelters because they've left everything behind and they've lost everything behind. Uh, there are about 1,600 people here today. Part of our team are here in Makata, that's myself and uh, three more. Uh, the rest of the team, uh, also the other part of the team is in Palo, and the rest of the team is in Jakarta. Mm-hmm. Uh, we managing everything and coordinating everything together. Uh, but some of the like, sad stories that we, we saw today and we met um, told sad people that we, we saw today, um, like a brother was sitting in the masjid beside the Quran and, and when we approached him, he had a beautiful uh, voice, mashallah. When we approached him, sat with him and spoke with him, he mentioned how he fled and ran away just before Maghrib Pew, minutes before Maghrib when Nani hit. And he said his own friend from the university, Islamic University of Palo, uh, was there as the warden of the masjid at the university and was calling for the adhan mm. when the tsunami hit and he died whilst he's calling for adhan. So, like, 75 years old man, his 
the five of his children. He was in the shock. He ran away when tsunami hit. But today he was carried by um, one of the uh, army members because he couldn't walk. He, he's in oh, okay. shock. You mm. see him, you see his eyes, you see his, his, his hands and how his fingers are moving around. You say this man is in a different world than us. You could see the tears in his eyes. It's, it's really sad. Um, on the positive side, though, here in in, uh, in Makassar, you could see the community gathered around. Sure. Those who come and those um, uh, IDPs are coming to them. The same feeling that we had or the same story that we saw uh, when uh, Grinfield Tower happened in, yeah, in London, yeah. so the community all coming together to respond. Today, I also see here in Makata so many food parcels, so many um, uh, bottles of water, and every single family that comes today are honoured and, and uh, served in the best way possible. But I think those are people who've lost everything. Um, sure. In just a few uh, minutes, we've lost everything. And, and we're still talking, as Brother Zia was mentioning, still talking about many families who are still uh, in Palo and the surrounding city. And not long ago, just few days ago, we had a, a meeting with one of the representatives of the government. And they mentioned, uh, they, they were speaking about the needs, and they mentioned so many things, including food, water, shelters. And one of the uh, shocking uh, items that they've mentioned is body bags. So they said there are so many bodies. So, I'm just running out of, of time. We're going to go into an ad break. Uh, so, so I'm just going to have to sort of thank you there. I'm sure we'll speak again because we're actually launching our appeal as well at Inspire FM, inshallah. Uh, so thank you very much. I know it's, it's probably very late at night over there. So Jazakallah had for your contribution. I'm sure that the people will respond accordingly. Asalaamu Alaikum. Right, inshallah, we're going to take a short break uh, and we'll be right back off these messages, inshallah. Stay tuned. The Prophet ﷺ said, When Allah had finished his creation, he wrote over his throne, My mercy overcomes my anger. Assalamualaikum, welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM 105.1 FM. This is Friday Night Live with me, Zafar Kamal. Uh, before the break, we talked uh, about the disaster, the tsunami uh, in Indonesia. We talked to a few representatives uh, of aid uh, charities uh, uh, and also represented from the Indonesian government. Uh, of course, Inspire FM is also launching its own uh, appeal starting on Monday. Uh, and we'll be working with our partner, Crisis Aid, inshallah, to raise some funds. Uh, so that we can pay, play a part. So if you want to sort of make a donation, inshallah, uh, you can call our studio starting today if you want to. Inshallah, we'll be happy to take your donations uh, and you will see some appeals happening on Monday uh, on behalf uh, of the Indonesian, uh, uh, well, using the charity, UK charities, but uh, for the people of Indonesia, uh, inshallah. Okay, I want to move on to the next topic of discussion today, which is Article 35A. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we ran out of time. Uh, so this is part B of that. It's a very, very important uh, important issue for the, the Kashmiri community uh, of Luton and I guess uh, Kashmiri community of other parts of uh, the UK where this radio station is broadcasting. So a bit like the Peterborough. Sheffield, etc. And hopefully, inshallah, people up there will be listening and tuning in and participating. Our number, as usual, is 01582 Or if you want a WhatsApp or, or text us, 07779 481822, inshallah. We'll be happy for your contributions. 
with me in our studio is, is uh, Zafar Khan. Uh, he represents uh, an organization called JKLF, uh, which many people know about. Uh, and he's also a prominent activist uh, within UK politics as well. And he's also a senior lecturer. Uh, I used to be a senior lecturer. I think he's retired. Uh, so we do have, I'm also mindful of the fact that we do have the uh, the uh, Maghrib Azan playing in about two minutes time, inshallah. So uh, I just want to quickly ask Zafar Saab uh, about Article 35A. Uh, what is it and why is it important? I think we'll carry on the discussion uh, after you, uh, a brief intro, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Zafar Saab, thank you very much for uh, having me on your program <clears throat> this evening. I think um, Article 35A of the Indian Const Constitution should not be considered as an instrument that was bestowed upon the people of Kashmir by <laughs> the uh, goodness or charity of India. It is a continuation of uh, a law of the Jammu Kashmir government that was enacted in 1927. Be which, before partition. Of course, yes. Now, um, in order for India to satiate uh, the, um, the the desire of the Kashmiris to um, to 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 if you like uh, uh, to to support uh, uh, what it called the accession of Kashmir to to India, uh, then they enacted uh, those rules within the uh, arrangements of that um, that agreement with uh, with the then uh, authorities of Jammu Kashmir uh, in 1947 and f right up to 52 when this particular Act of 35A um, was was made uh, under a presidential order uh, rather than passed by the Indian Parliament, but under a presidential, yeah, but we, presidential I, I, order. I think, we, I think we got too technical last time. What we want yeah. to do today is just look at the impact of it on, on the Kashmiri community. I think what it uh, what it did do but, but, but was sorry, to before we do uh, that, I, I need some I need to take some time out to to actually play the azan, inshallah. So just yeah. play with me a second, sir. So. Salawatullah alayka 
خير رسل ربي من به أبصرت دربي يا شفيع يا رسول الله أيها المختار فينا زادنا الحب حنينا جئتنا بالخير دينا يا ختام المرسلين يا حبيبي يا محمد يا نبي سلام عليك يا رسول سلام عليك يا حبيب سلام عليك صلوات الله عليك يا نبي سلام عليك يا رسول سلام عليك يا حبيب سلام عليك صلوات الله عليك Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM. This is Friday Night Live. Uh, my name is Zafar, and we are discussing uh, the topic of Article 35, um, uh, of which which relates to uh, the Indian side of Kashmir. We were talking to Zafar Khan, who is an activist uh, based in Luton. Uh, we also have on the line Dr. Nazir uh, Gilani, uh, who is the president of JNK Council for Human Rights. Uh, and is also uh, a very learned person with regards to United Nations and United Nations uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, articles that have been passed on Kashmir. Uh, so we're going to have a discussion, a joint discussion. So I'm going to open the, the channels uh, to Dr. Saab to, to come in at any time, but also Zafar Saab to actually start off the discussion. So before the break, before the Azan, uh, we were talking about what the Article 35 is, because I think a lot of people aren't familiar with with the implications of it, you know, what it, it is a is a legal instrument, as you mentioned before the break, it's a legal instrument that was uh, that was in place before partition, uh, and uh, and it was basically inducted into the Indian Constitution post uh, partition, uh, but it has significance, and it has significance because it is now under threat. Uh, is that right? If you, if you want to. I think Dr. Gilani will uh, will uh, be better able to explain the legal side of it and uh, um, also the um, context within which it uh, sort of, if you like, uh, um, um, was um, um, inducted into into the new situation uh, after 1947. But I think um, the important uh, element here is that it safeguard it safeguard guards the state uh, state subject laws. Uh, 
which um, uh, guarantee uh, some fundamental uh, laws of the uh, of, of the kashmiris mainly citizenship property property rights uh, and who can be defined as a uh, as a as a as a citizen of jammu kashmir and and so on and so forth and now as i said uh, uh, that it it was an an act uh, that was instituted by uh, the government of jammu kashmir maharaja hari singh in 1927 so therefore um, india um, india um, has not given anything to kashmiris it was something that india had to uh, incorporate if you like uh, within the arrangements that india entered into when it uh, it um, uh, began to control jammu kashmir or or the so called accession of jammu kashmir with india which was a temporary uh, temporary arrangement anyway um so once you remove or abrogate these laws then you are essentially uh, opening the flood gates for anyone uh, from one 0.25 billion people of india to come and buy property and land and and so on and settlement and that will mean that the whole of the uh, region will be overwhelmed uh, and and what these state subject laws do or rules do is that they hold those uh, at bay and i think that is the major if you like uh, uh, major uh, angst of the kashmiris um, that this is an intention or um, mal intention of the indian government which is encouraging low uh, which is encouraging ngos and people like uh, organizations like that to uh, to approach the supreme court of india uh, to give a ruling now in uh, uh, reality it is the indian government uh, which had entered into arrangements with the government of jammu and kashmir uh, but by taking a step back indian government appears to be actually encouraging this process so that it can uh, uh, it can uh, change the character and the nature of uh, uh, governance uh, and of uh, uh, citizenship uh, and property property rights in jammu kashmir uh, and uh, and um, uh, change the balance if you like uh, of demography or change demography uh, and and uh, thereby um, from our point of view um, subvert the nature of uh, uh, you know uh, the, sure. the 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 status uh, of jammu kashmir so uh, dr nazir kalani sahib assalam alaikum are you on the line assalam yes uh, I, I, just, I, i think we we've just just heard from zafar sahib the impact of uh, tampering with this particular uh, this particular legal instrument uh, but i guess it has uh, a bigger impact in the sense that uh, legally it seems it wants to sort of disturb the the status of kashmir as being a disputed territory it wants to legislate uh you know it it legislate which effectively uh undermines the the, the current status of kashmir as it is would you would you sort of uh subscribe to that view Uh, yes, Assalamualaikum, uh, Professor. Professor Waalaikum Salaam, sir. Yes, uh, Professor has very rightly laid down the foundation of the argument. There are two things here in which we need to take note of. That um, it ails India to see a Muslim-majority state. That is the uh, principal feature that does uh, discomfort them because so far we have had Kashmir as a Muslim majority state but 
the right of self-determination is for every citizen of the state. Mm. So, um, what India has started doing that they want to dismantle a 92-year-old law mm. because Kashmiris are differentiated by this law from Indians. Mm-hmm. We have uh, our nationality law, as Professor Saab rightly said, it goes back to 20th of April 1927. Mm-hmm. So it sets out who is a Kashmiri and who is a non-Kashmiri. It, mm. is, um, it guarantees some, uh, some basic rights to the people of the state of Jammu and Kashmir against anybody who would wish to come from outside. Mm-hmm. So the uh, Article 35A is uh, a post-partition and post-1950 development Mm-hmm. Because uh, our law dates back to April 20, 1927, and this um, uh, 35A, it has been brought in, I think, in 1954. Mm-hmm. So India cannot bring it in because the United Nations, uh, in its resolution of 30th of March 1951, has cautioned the government of India and the government of Srinagar. Mm-hmm. that uh, you cannot bring in any change because the government elected at Srinagar does not represent the entire state. Sure. Okay. So it is a non-representative government. It, is, it has inherent infirmity of non-representation. It does not represent the people of Azad Jammu and Kashmir, people of Kilgit and Baltistan, the Kashmiri diaspora. So the Srinagar government is elected from only a, sure. a part okay. of the state. So, I, so, I that think has, the, so this this is where the trouble lies, is, is that this law encompasses not just the, the Indian-held Kashmir side of things, but also the Pakistani side and GB. Uh, and yes. the fact that if a unilateral action is taken from one portion of it, then it it actually undermines the status of Kashmir, which is a disputed territory. And I, get, I guess in the, 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 the broader context here is that, that India uh, India is not a homogenous country. It's a country of many nations. Many many states have actually joined the union. It's, it's a union of different states. Uh, some have, have joined voluntarily. Others have, were forced to join. Kashmir being one of them. And Kashmir enjoyed uh, a different status, uh, a certain amount of autonomy, because of the United Nations resolutions and this particular article undermines or the removal of this article undermines that status would you uh, India has a challenge from within as well the oh. Indian sponsored government at Srinagar in 1996 constituted a, a committee it was named as uh, autonomy um, uh, report committee so they have come up with the report and they have told India that uh, our findings are that we have never merged into the Union of India. Sure. We have had a limited conditional accession on three subjects. Right. That is defense, foreign affairs, and currency. India can legislate only on those three if it wants to, mm-hmm. because otherwise India has no link with Kashmir other than those three subjects. And this was this so was it, this was the condition of of accession to to yes uh, yes it was a condition that we surrender only three subjects to you at this point but at the same time there was a condition in bill that the it is a conditional um, bilateral arrangement it would be referred to the general vote of the people of the state of Kashmir before India went to United Nations. 
So it has to be understood that India has on its own made a pledge to the people of Kashmir before going to UN that I am here coming on a temporary basis uh, just for law and order situation. Mm, okay. All right. So, so, so the law and order situation uh, that was uh, flagged by Maharaja was emergency sure. uh, on 26th of October 1947. Mm-hmm. But India went to the United Nations in January 1948 and has surrendered its conditional accession for a. UN supervised vote. So there, as Professor Saab uh, would have said or would be saying in the follow-up, at this point in time, Kashmiris do not have an accession with India. It has been surrendered at the United Nations on 15th of January 1948 for a UN supervised vote. So I guess the next natural question is is why, why are those um, those, uh, I guess, resolutions, the actions, why are they not, not reflected in, in the, uh, the grand realities within the Kashmir? Uh, because I think this might energize the whole situation. It, as uh, I think, if I heard Professor correctly, it will open up a Pandora box because what would happen that India would face an international challenge that you were under caution not to disturb the principality of self-determination, um, which has been envisaged by the UN resolutions. Uh, so India cannot make any change. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to that, I think it might interest uh, um, the listeners as well. Up until 31st of March 1959, mm-hmm. way after accession of 47, the Indian citizens needed a, an entry permit to come into Kashmir. That means they, need, they required a visa to come to Kashmir. Okay, all right. So, so it's not that easy for Indians because they they want to bulldoze it. Basically, what what is happening, and they don't want to give it out. But basically, the Indians are of the opinion that Jammu and Kashmir is a spiritual state for them, mm. as uh, Makkah and Medina is for for Muslims. They say that. Uh, the Hinduism has its nascent beginning from the state of Jammu and Kashmir. Mm, okay. So, um, uh, because on 20th of December 1931, uh, at Lahore, the Mahasabha, they, uh, they came out uh, in protest to support the Maharaja of Kashmir and the army of Kashmir, knowing well that the army had killed or martyred um, 23 people on 13th of July 1931. So it's not uh, today's issue. I think I think they have been gradually coming into it, and it took them a lot longer. And 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 they have fooled the PDP to come into the state um, to to enjoy and uh, control the administration of the state. So I, I guess the, the next question I really is, is around the role of Britain, actually, because if Britain was part of, of drafting or, or, or agreeing of, of 35A uh, and, and agreeing to the instruments at 47, does Britain not have a, a legal obligation, or if not a moral one at least anyway, uh, of actually stepping in and saying, well, actually, hang on, this is not right. You cannot do this because the status of Kashmir isn't... Uh, it isn't that of a, an independent state but a disputed region? No, Britain has no part in 35A because it was enacted by Indians in 1954. 
Right, but but so the predecessor, the the the, the actual yes, uh, the article which agree, which guarantees the, I guess the that is that is three seventy. Right. Uh, even uh, even if when you refer to three seventy, the Kashmir has its own national flag. Sure. It has its own national anthem. Mm-hmm. So we do not have the anthem, and they, it's not obligatory for a Kashmiri to stand when the Indian national anthem is played in Srinagar. They, they, they have a choice, sure. but they have their own national anthem. Mm-hmm. And Article 370 says that India will not uh, legislate uh, beyond these three subjects, and even if at any point they want to do anything, it has to be. Uh, validated by the state legislature. So any uh, any law that Indians might enact has to be approved by the Jammu and Kashmir Assembly. And that too, it's not a representative assembly, so they mm. can't approve any law. Yeah, and I, I think, Dr. Saab, as you will, uh, you will uh, agree with me, that uh, the assembly in Srinagar is also subject to the United Nations resolutions, particularly also in the early 50s and as well as the last one in 57, uh, which is specifically uh, um, really cautioned it that it has no right to uh, change uh, any anything in, in, in substance uh, as regards to the future, uh, future disposition of uh, the state as a whole so I, I think uh, um, uh, the, the argument would be that um, whatever India is now doing or has uh, intended to sort of uh, shown is its hand uh, of intention or uh, uh, um, or has done in the past in in this 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 uh, this this context uh, actually is bound by all those uh, uh, you know sort of uh, issues around the Kashmir issue itself. So I, I guess from, from, from my perspective and, and, and also the, the Kashmiri community's perspective, I think the obvious question would be, uh, why would be why would we be interested in this from a uh, Kashmiri perspective, I guess, in the UK? Well, we are interested because we are an interested party. We we are a concerned party. Uh, Kashmiris all over the world are concerned party. As quite rightly, Dr. Gilani has said that uh, um, while uh, while the Muslims may be majority, but every Kashmiri, everyone who lives there, has a right uh, and a stake. So therefore. Uh, all Kashmiris, perhaps as many as 20 million uh, across the world, in in Kashmir itself as well as in the diaspora, have a right uh, and have a stake uh, to to actually. What uh, what play do they stand to lose? I guess if that's the question is if they've left the country and then live outside. I guess Dr. Dr. Nazir Saab, you 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 hail from from uh, the Indian side of Kashmir. Uh, what, what what is your bigger fear, biggest fear? Uh, I've got about 30 seconds before I go on a break. So if you just have a a brief. A response and we'll we'll do a detailed one after the break if you wouldn't mind okay yes i think professor Sauer has uh, um, explained it um, in, in a better way but i would simply add that uh, the u.n resolution of 21st of april 1948 guarantees my right and professor Sauer's right to return in safety and dignity because you also have a right to return to kashmir because we are aborigines we have been displaced whether it takes me 100 years my next generation but i still retain my right under the u.n resolutions to return to kashmir in safety and dignity and right. to participate in the future right okay so we're going to take a short break inshallah we'll be back to discuss a bit further what you've just said inshallah uh, and and we're going to carry on the discussion about kashmir in article 35a stay with us okay. stay tuned inshallah 
You're listening to an Inspire FM podcast, making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Welcome back. You're listening to Inspire FM. This is Friday Night Live with me, Zafra Kabal. And we're talking about Article 35 uh, of the, I would say, Kashmir Constitution or... or, or uh, Indian, Indian Constitution. Indian Constitution. Article 35, the Indian Constitution, which relates to Kashmir. So before the break, we were talking, we asked a very emotive question, why should we care? Uh, and uh, Dr. Nazir Saab, you were saying you want the right to return. So I guess... I guess you've left your home in the Indian side of Kashmir and, and uh, want to reclaim it back. And, and what's stopping you from doing that? Uh, because um, we have to return in safety and dignity uh, mm. to take part in the referendum, which would be supervised by the United Nations. Mm-hmm. And and Professor Khan would also return to meet for, uh, or or there might be an arrangement to have a box here for the referendum for the um, diaspora. Sure. What we need to do, we need to make sure that the numerical superiority of Muslims in Kashmir, or for that reason, the the demography of the state should not be disturbed by um, by aliens. In the sense, India is has no. Um, legal uh, standing in Kashmir, because whatever legal standing they had, uh, that was that was reversed uh, on 1st of January 1949, when UN brokered a ceasefire between India and Pakistan, and Anmogi was placed to supervise the ceasefire line. Sure. Okay. So, so basically, the Indian Army has come into Kashmir for a certain uh, under an excuse. Mm-hmm. The excuse was that Maharaja said, I am facing an emergency. Mm-hmm. So the Maharaja's emergency is not there. The Nehru said, we have a serious situation. The serious situation is no more there. Now there is an army which is in uh, at war with the people of Kashmir. Mm-hmm. So this is the world's highest milita- militarized zone. Uh, 500,000 to 700,000 Indian army is there. But the United Nations says that they have to be bare minimum. There is a restraint on their behavior, on their number, and on their location as well. This army was required to be far away into jungles. They were not supposed to be in the cities. So now we have a huge... uh, uh, population of Indian Army, which is given, uh, they are, they have no holes barred. They are killing on a daily basis, blinding people on a daily basis, um, violating human rights on a daily basis. So we, even if we were, even if we were not Kashmiris, uh, to defend somebody's human right is the duty of every human being around the globe. Sure. But since we are from the state, we are state subjects. Mm-hmm. The citizens of the state of Jammu and Kashmir. Sure. Uh, so it is binding on us to see that our number is not disturbed, our people are not killed, they are not humbled and humiliated, mm. and an army which did not need to be there mm. is there. So we have to challenge the status of Indian army that you came into Kashmir to defend, uh, to protect life, protect property, honor, and the territory of the state. So they could not defend the territory. It is now distributed into three. 
So they failed to do first part. The second is to protect life. But they have, I think, killed 150,000 people so far. So now they are destroying the property and they are dishonoring the people. So in a way, the principle under which they came has been vitiated. They are a rogue army and an outside army in Kashmir. And that needs to be highlighted that we are faced with an army and with the people who until 59 required a visa to come to Kashmir. Now I am required to have a visa. It, 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 it is the... The Arab and the camel situation that the the camel. So, so I, I guess the question, question, Dr. Saib, is why why isn't if that's the case, if the legal uh, instruments are there and available, why are they not being pursued? What what is stopping citizens of Kashmir or uh, people who represent uh, the citizens of Kashmir from pursuing these uh, instruments uh, in I don't know international courts or UN? Um, uh, first uh, proposal was made by the United Kingdom. Um, Prime Minister Attlee uh, in November 1947 to Pakistan that we need to take Kashmir issue to International Court of Justice. So it was on 22nd of November 1947. So unfortunately Pakistan was only three months old or four months old mm. uh, uh, on that day on 22nd of November. So they did not have the confidence and the diplomatic and diplomatic resource to take it to ICJ. So, so but why has I it not been taken since then? Why, why is not? That, yes, then in 51, Americans prepared a paper to go to ICJ. And their uh, main purpose was to challenge the Indian claim that the that the accession so, sorry, is sorry, Doctor. Sir, my question is why why is Zafar, Professor Zafar Khan or you not taking the case to uh, to the United Nations or ICJ? Uh, I think Zafar, uh, Professor Khan has convened a meeting, a very um, useful one. I think he's pursuing the, these lines of action, and we are exploring how best we can do. The problem is that we have an advocate as well, which is Pakistan. Pakistan is a party to the dispute, and Pakistan is a member nation of the United Nations as well. <clears throat> And our so difficulty, the, our difficulty, Dr. Gilani, also is that uh, as individuals, we do not have a right of appearance before ICJ. You're right. You're uh, right. And so perhaps, uh, <laughs> perhaps uh, we need to persuade. Well, maybe it's the <laughs> AAJK government, perhaps needs uh, to there, do something. There you are. I leave that to Dr. Gilani <laughs> to answer. Professor <laughs> <laughs> uh, has very, very, very brilliantly summed up the situation as individuals, but we. We can activate a pressure, we can dent into the sympathy circle of United Kingdom, um, even Cuba, small countries can help us. Any small country can uh, come forward, but Pakistan is the principal country that uh, uh, is giving out um, a claim that I support people of Kashmir politically, morally, diplomatically. So I think we will ask them, uh, or, or they may be forced uh, at one point, because that they will, have, they will be left with no choice but to test the ICJ. So how about um, Britain then? So why, why does Britain not, not take the case to ICJ again? Seeing that, that you know, when the status of GB, Gilgit Baltistan in, in Pakistan, was was being uh, considered, so to converting GB into a state of Pakistan, uh, yeah. an MP by the name of Bob Blackman was able to go to the UK Parliament and, and basically pass a motion there to 
to oppose that on the basis that the Kashmir was and is uh, a disputed territory. Uh, so why, why does Britain, why do not many of our Kashmiri, Pakistani MPs in the UK, the councils, etc. Why are they not able to sort of persuade the government to do something similar and take the case to, uh, uh, well, persuade the British government to the case, take the case to ICJ? A brilliant question. You know, Bob Blackman um, failed to remain uh, credible because he said Kashmir is an integral part of India. He should not have said that. Sure. He, he he had views of Gilgit and Baltistan, but he had different views at the same time. Then he made certain allegations against Muslims of the state that they forced the Hindus to convert, uh, and, and then the Kashmiri Pandit. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're it, sli- slightly sort of digressing a little bit. I, I've only got a couple of yes, minutes, in, uh, inshallah. We'll yes, take- I'll come back to it, yes. Because it's, I think we do not have the reliable understanding of Kashmir case, because in August, Britain was holding the presidency of the UN Security Council, and they also introduced a debate on mediation and settlement of disputes. We could have very easily forced the British government to induct Kashmir in that debate. It's not that the people are not ready to help us. The unfortunate part of it is that we are not able to offer an agenda to the governments. Where do we need their help? Because in September, Americans had the presidency. I think now it is, um, I, I don't know which country has the presidency in October, but I think it's in Brazil. So we need to keep an eye and explore the, the constituency of sympathy and support. And it is that uh, programs like this, if it reaches out to people and they understand that Kashmiris are legally defined far different than an Indian and a Pakistani at this point. And and we need to uh, make uh, a choice um, that is exercise our right to self-determination. That will determine whether we want to, uh, which way we would like to move. So these programs are very important that we agitate the and we just generate awareness around this issue and start finding out like East Timorese sure. because they did not uh, they had uh, support but they were very technical and very prudent sure. in prosecuting their case. Okay, I think that's a very uh, apt point to stop on, uh, uh, Dr. Zisab Jazakallah. Thank you very much for joining my program today. Uh, inshallah, there'll be many other opportunities to get your views on, on uh, various issues, uh, I guess, aside from Kashmir as well. You seem to be very learned and very active in, in the legal uh, legal frame. Shukriya. Jazakallah. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you. Thank you very much. Right. OK, so we want to move on to our next topic of discussion. So, again, if you've been been watching television and if you've been watching the news and if you've been watching uh, reading the newspapers, uh, you would have noticed that uh, the Conservative Party were having a bit of a, a party, uh, a conference. Um, so uh, I wanted the thing is that the thing that came out from from a lot of the articles and, and news headlines that came out it was all about leadership challenges and it was all about uh, Brexit and and maneuverings by Boris Johnson and things of that nature. Uh, you didn't hear anything about one word i guess which is islamophobia and that was the i guess the equivalent of that from from the labor party conference was the entire week the newspapers were full of commentary full of articles uh about 
you know, the Islam, the uh, anti-Semitism of the Labour Party. Now, you would have thought there have been voices raised. The the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the British sort of uh, 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 council actually sort of uh, raised the prospect of the fact that there are people of Islamic phobic uh, attitude within the Conservative Party, but none of that was written about. None of that was talked about. So I've got on the line today somebody who's a regular. Uh, I guess a guest um, of Inspire FM. Uh, he's uh, uh, Muhammad Amin. He's uh, the chair of the Conservative Muslim Forum. Uh, and I wanted to put that question to him. Uh, uh, Muhammad Amin, sub, Asalaamu Alaikum. Wa Alaikum Jinnab, why was there no mention of Islamophobia uh, in the uh, Conservative Party conference? And why did they not hit the headlines? Were, were you actually doing your job? I was at the party conference for all four days. I never go into the main auditorium because sure. if you want to be in the main auditorium, you might as well stay home and watch it on television. Okay. But I attended many fringe meetings and I met lots of people that I know. Sure. And, and did, did you raise the, the prospect of um, the Islamic phobic attitudes of, of people like Boris Johnson who mentioned uh, or referred to Muslims, Muslim women as, as post boxes. Did, did, was any of that discussed? Did you raise that with anybody? When Boris Johnson wrote his article in early August uh, about women who wear niqab and burqa, an article that was trying to have it both ways, because on the one hand he was saying we should not ban it, which is fine, that's liberal, but at the same time he was basically insulting them and denigrating them, which is not fine at all. And sure. I appeared in the media on many occasions at that time condemning Boris Johnson for what he'd said. Uh, after that, he hasn't repeated it. There right. was no reason to raise that... But there, there have been other instances as well, haven't there? There's, there's, there's been a few MPs who've made remarks. Uh, you know, uh, Zach Goldsmith in his campaign that he had was, you know, it was tinged with, with Islamic phobic references, etc. There is, there is Islamophobia within the Conservative Party, right? When... Zach Goldsmith had his mayoral campaign in 2016. Sure. At the end of the campaign, after it was over, I wrote a very critical article about Zach Goldsmith. Other conservatives criticised him as well. But there's no point now in 2018 raking over old cold. What the Conservative Muslim Forum did do on the 4th of June, we sent an open letter to Theresa May, the Prime Minister. You can read that letter on our website calling for an independent inquiry into Islam, whether Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. But that didn't happen, reason, did it? Uh, the reason we call for that inquiry is that when I go around the country talking to Muslims, which I do quite regularly, trying to persuade them to support the Conservative Party, many of them tell me that they think the Conservative Party is anti-Muslim. And it is, it is. I'm, I'm saying that it is. You tell me it's not. It's extremely unhelpful for the Conservative Party and for the country if Muslims think that. And okay. The only way well, well persuade me otherwise. I'm, I'm taking that position, persuade me otherwise. <coughs> the, the Conservative Party has, unfortunately, from time to time, had members of the Conservative Party say things that are anti-Muslim. And one of the things I was very pleased about after we issued our call for the inquiry, Brandon Lewis, the chairman of the party, wrote an article on the Conservative Home website making it clear that there would be zero tolerance of Islamophobia. The party has tightened up its code of conduct 
and there is a very clear procedure for people to complain if they think any a, anybody has been Islamophobic. And I know that complaints have been made about Boris Johnson. I have no idea what's going to happen to those complaints. There's a, an investigation process, mm. and no doubt we will eventually hear what's happened. Uh, eventually. Uh, so the question I have is, is do, do you think, I guess, um, as a, a Muslim and, and a conservative, uh, that uh, the... I guess the the view that that people the common people have of Muslims is very dangerous at this stage, and it's it's um, it, something needs to be done about it. Do you agree with that? Well, first of all, I do not believe that the leadership of the Conservative Party is anti-Muslim. I've been a party member for thirty-five years. Sure. I would not have stayed in the party for thirty-five years if I thought the party was anti-Muslim. Sure. From time to time, individual Conservatives get out of line, sure. and we need to be much tougher dealing with them, and I'm pleased that the party... So g- give me an example where the party has actually dealt with somebody who made Islamophobic... Uh, I'm aware of local councillors who've been suspended, I'm aware of people who've been uh, sent for sort of compulsory re-education. Uh, I don't have a long list of sure. names, because I don't believe in collecting these things, sure. but I am... From talking to the party chairman one to one, I know how determined he is to address this issue. Sure. So, so do do you, uh, back to my question again. Do you think that situation of Muslims, the way the Muslims are viewed today, and I'll I'll be quite blatant that, that there are parallels between the way the Muslims are viewed today with Jews in the 30s. Now, do you uh, do you accept that characterization? Uh, no, I don't. And, and, the key thing and is why viewed, not? No, no, the key thing is viewed by whom? There is absolutely no way that the Conservative Party, our Prime Minister, our Home Secretary... I, I, I'm, make, I'm making a, gen, a general, general comment on the fact that it's now quite common for somebody, even like Boris Johnson, to say things about Muslim women. Uh, and you, you have parties like the UKIP, right, you know, openly, openly uh, anti-Muslim. There are parties across Europe, right, who are openly anti-Muslim, and they don't shy away from it. Uh, and in the media, media is anti-Muslim. And you're telling me that that you don't think the situation for Muslims is anywhere. Uh, I well, guess that the Muslims are not viewed as 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 Jews were in the 30s. Well, let's take that one by one. When sure. Boris Johnson made his comments, he was criticised not just by me but by many other senior conservatives. But he, he's picking up on the vibes. He's picking up on the vibes that have been generated by the likes of people in UKIP and the likes of people, you know, in the EDL, etc., etc. And and what's happening is, and as uh, uh, Lady Vasi said, those type of views are gaining currency. And they're gaining currency in the Conservative Party. And that's the point uh, I'm trying no, to make. No, they're not gaining currency in the Conservative Party. Let sure. me go back to what you said. Sure. Uh, the EDL is an extremist organization. It's condemned by all right-thinking politicians. UKIP sadly, seems to be drifting towards an extreme position. The, the current leader of UKIP seems to be anti-Muslim, sure. and even people like Nigel Farage are complaining that he's anti-Muslim. The, uh, the two important parties, that, the three important parties that matter in this country, in England, are the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, and the Liberal Democrat Party. All three parties are absolutely categorically not anti-Muslim. Full stop. Right. Okay. And 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 what a, every now and then you get the evidence coming out, uh, you know, of the Conservative Party, and the fact that it's not being dealt with the same way as as anti-Semitism within the Labour Party is being dealt with. Does that not tell you that there is uh, a different attitude with the way accusations are dealt with within one party versus another party? 
the Labour Party have actually been lamentably poor in the past at dealing with accusations of anti-Semitism. Mm. The Conservative Party is determined to be even tougher than it's been in the past on dealing with Islamophobia. But uh, the, the, it, it has, but you know, constantly you still get evidence of things coming out. I mean, Lady Vasi has made a comment again saying that it's it's now within the, the party is actually uh, on the verge of being Islam, uh, Islamophobic. You know, it's uh, you know, there's, there's so many evidences. I haven't seen that latest comment of uh, Baroness Vasi's. When did she make it? And because I, I said I, I, that's not a comment I've seen. I know she's spoken on many occasions about Islamophobia, and sure. indeed. Uh, just before we issued our call for an independent inquiry on the 4th of June, the previous week, I know that both she and Lord Sheikh called for an independent inquiry as well. But if she said something the last few days, I simply missed that. Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. Just, I guess, broadening the discussion out a little bit. So if you, I guess, uh, now that we've got you um, uh, on on our radio, and, and I guess reading your biography, you're quite a accomplished person, mashallah. You're a, you're a businessman and... Uh, and an expert in Islamic finance, maybe perhaps we can draw your comment on the topic that we had early on. We were talking about um, Article 35A in Kashmir and the status of Kashmir. Is that something that that you you um, you know are aware of or have an interest in? Uh, the Conservative Muslim Forum, of which I'm the chairman, sure. and I'm appearing here tonight on behalf of the Conservative Muslim Forum, sure. has no position on the Kashmir dispute. And no and position. I don't. I don't want to answer any questions about Kashmir because we have no position on it. No position at all? No, we have no position on most things. Uh, if you look on our website, we tend not to take policy positions. We were neutral, for example, on the EU referendum in 2016. Mm. We leave it to our members to decide whether they're for something or against something. The, the only areas where we take a position normally sure. are some things that matters to every Muslim. So halal food, we have a clear position. Right. We believe in the right to have halal food. Mm. We have a clear position about the freedom to wear niqab and burqa, which is why uh, I was speaking out against Boris Johnson. We have a clear position, obviously, on anti-Muslim hatred, but uh, we do not have a position on Kashmir. We do not have a position on Israel and Palestine, or on that as well, on, on Cairo or anything else. So why is that then? Would you would you not expect perhaps you know um, a forum which represents or seeks to represent Muslim conservatives? The, these are things which are, I guess, quite. Um, uh, quite close to to the hearts of many people. I mean, a lot of the the uh, population of the UK have some sort of link with Kashmir and and have a uh, have a view, I guess, on Kashmir at least. Anyway, so you you would have thought that um, uh, you know a conservative Muslim forum would have some sort of view on that. Muslims in Britain will have a range of views about Kashmir, and they're free to take those views forward. The conservative Muslim forum doesn't do policy except when it's something that all Muslims, or almost all Muslims, should be able to agree on. Right. And then should, So the question is, should you not be then? Why, why should you not be in? Uh, because uh, Muslims have a range of views on Kashmir, for example. Right, okay. It's not, a, it's not as if all Muslims think the same thing about Kashmir. That would be nonsense. Right, okay. Uh, so I, I guess the same question about Israel-Palestine, then you don't think... Exactly the same thing about Israel and Palestine. So in, Mus in, 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 a, Muslim, in a Muslim community, there are a range of views. I think you, you'd be hard find to find somebody, um, I, I guess, who would be very pro-Israel from the Muslim community, right? No? There are, there, are, there are Muslims who call themselves Zionists. Right, okay. And that's the reason why you don't have a position on that. We don't so have we, a I, I, I would call, that, I, I would call that, that those people... I would call those people uh, in very much a minority. 
Uh, there may be a minority, but they're entitled to take forward their views. As I said, when the Conservative Muslim Forum reaches a position on a political issue, it's something sure. that we feel would be supported by virtually all Muslims. Sure, okay. So what, 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 what uh, apart from the few things that you've said, so what does the Conservative Muslim Forum stand for uh, in terms of actually projecting a view uh, in the Conservative Party then? Uh, we clearly stand for the freedom to practice our religion, to have Islamic faith schools, for example, to wear uh, clothing, recognition of religious holidays, countering discrimination against Muslims. Those are the kinds of issues where we take a stand. Sure. Okay. Uh, right. Uh, I think uh, it's been quite a, a useful discussion with yourself, I think, as always. Uh, I, I know I always give you a hard time uh, uh, I mean, Sabbath, okay. you're, you're I don't mind you asking me questions, and I give you straight answers. <laughs> you do. You, I have to give you credit. You do. You do have a, and I always expect a different answer for you every time, but it's not. It's the same all the time. But uh, uh, thank you. I guess thank you very much for uh, for joining me today, and I think it's been fascinating talking to you as as it uh, as always been. Uh, and I guess uh, you know, um, carry on the work. I guess, uh, and I think there is a problem. You know, personally, at least, anyway, I think there is a. There is a problem of Islamophobia within the Conservative Party, and if you say, like you have said, that you've been challenging it, I think that's probably a good, good thing, um, and, and I guess you carry on doing that. Thank you. Right. Okay. Zakala, thank you very much, Amin Saab. Uh, right. That was uh, uh, the representative uh, or the chair of the Conservative Muslim Forum talking uh, about the Conservative Party conference uh, and Islamophobia, or allegations of Islamophobia. Uh, which have been levered against the Conservative Party. And he firmly believes that that's not the case. And if there are cases, there are individual cases, and those cases are dealt with by due process with the, uh, by the party. Okay, uh, we're going to take a short break, inshallah, and we'll be back and we'll start talking about a completely different topic. And that topic is around parenting. I think something very important, something we stress. And this is a campaign that Inspire FM has been championing this week, inshallah. So stay tuned. And... Dial in, tune in after the break. Assalamualaikum. The Prophet ﷺ said, When Allah had finished His creation, He wrote over His throne, My mercy overcomes my anger. And this is Friday Night Live, as you might have heard. Uh, if you've tuned in since 7 o'clock, uh, 6 o'clock, we've talked about the tsunami in Indonesia. Uh, we've talked about Article 35A, uh, which is... Um, basically seeking to remove some some of the rights of the Kashmiri people on, on the Indian Herald side of Kashmir. Uh, we spoke to a representative from the, the Conservative Party. We spoke to uh, 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 Mohammed Amin, who is the chair of the, of the uh, Conservative Muslim Forum. Uh, and we talked, we're going to talk now, inshallah, about parenting. So Inspire FM has been uh, discussing parenting as a theme so as you know, Inspire FM does programs uh, based on themes occasionally. So we have lots of themes running throughout the year. Uh, and we pick a, a wide variety of uh, subjects. And I think parenting is uh, one that's close to my heart. And it's a very important topic, very important topic in the current day and age when, when parenting skills, I guess, are challenged from many different areas, from social media to devices uh, to schooling as well, I would say. Uh, so having uh, a balanced uh, sense of um, parenthood, I guess, is is uh, essential, inshallah, uh, in, in this day in life. Uh, and I have with me today to discuss the topic of parenting, uh, 
his brother Ali, who also runs the Parenting Hour uh, on Inspire FM, uh, and his son Osama. And I've also got a, an accomplished parent, I would say, <laughs> Zafar Khan Sab, who's actually stayed on kindly after the, the Kashmir topic. And I'm sure he can share uh, his, uh, his experiences as a, as a first-generation father, I would say. Is it first or second-generation? First-generation father, second, isn't it? Second. Second-generation father, mashallah. Mashallah, okay. So, okay. So, let, let's kick off, Brother uh, Ali. Uh, parenting, <coughs> why, why should we worry about parenting? Things are becoming easier, I guess. Uh, you know, the schooling is, is a lot more uh, comprehensive. Uh, why do we need to worry about parenting? Okay, assalamu alaikum firstly to all the listeners uh, and uh, bismillah rahman rahim I think uh, it's important to have a very sound grounding about parenting. Um, you know, we can weigh up the importance from a perspective of nurturing someone who's going to be successful, nurturing someone who's going to be eloquent in his speech, nurturing someone who's going to have good character. But these are all enshrined and embedded in just um one verse of the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala very clearly says, all you who believe or believing men fulfill your duty towards your children and your family and save them from the fire whose fuel is men and stones. That for me was the cornerstone of raising my children. And I think from an Islamic perspective, that always has to be the cornerstone. Upon that, then you build the whole spectrum of the different qualities that you're looking for in your, in your children. Okay, inshallah. And, and I guess um, I'll comment from Osama. Uh, I guess you've had uh, a different kind of parenting, I would say, right? Uh, and do you think parenting these days uh, has a, a bigger role than perhaps it used to have traditionally? Uh, welcome to, to all the listeners. Um, in regards to your question, I think it does. Uh, it has a much more bigger role purely because um, society is transforming um, very quickly, mm. right? The the values that we used to have, for example, yourself toward your parents were, you know, the difference between the, 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 the sky and the earth in terms of how people have values towards their parents now. So the care that you had for your parents is different to maybe the, the care that our generation has to their parents and right. every generation every new generation that comes because society is moving and certain values are being pushed out um, <coughs> to, and to be frank these are islamic values actually to, to care for your parents um so um there's there's a hadith where the prophet he said which means that the, the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lies in the pleasure of the parents, right? And the anger of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lies in the anger of the parents, basically. Sure. So, um, so yeah, it does. It has a much bigger role. Inshallah. Okay. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about those challenges, inshallah, as the program grows. But sure. I guess a word from Zafar Saab. Uh, Zafar Saab, um, I guess <coughs> things are somewhat different from I guess uh, when you were a child, um, give us a, I guess a, a snippet of how you <coughs> perceive the things have changed and if they've changed for the better. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I I, I think um, I mean I'm I'm fascinated uh, and very inspired by what Asama has said, uh, and uh, undoubtedly very learned. But uh, I think the difference now and looking back, say, 60 years or more than 60 years is that um, 
children are more questioning. Yeah, sure. More questioning and more, I suppose, uh, inquisitive and uh, would not simply be satisfied by just saying yes to a parent. In terms of values, values. I think that is a fundamental value uh, change, if you like. I mean, whereas uh, right to uh, this old age, I would still uh, would not do anything that my parents did oh. not want me to do. Um, and perhaps uh, that decision may not even be considered 100% rational by me mm. um, and very subjective, but I would still <laughs> would listen to what uh, my parents would say. But I, I think that is not the case. Even as a second generation parent, that was not the case. And maybe in my own case, I perhaps encourage children to be, uh, if you like, more, um, uh, I suppose, the regime, if you like, parental regime uh, was not contrived to be restrictive, sure. if I could put it that way. Um, uh, and and um, maybe, maybe because I sense the environment and so on and so forth. But um, I think um, looking back uh, the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, 90s, now it's completely different. Uh, sure. I mean, so what, do, do you think um, the parents have more challenges now than perhaps they had before in terms of um, the different different areas they had to sort of focus on uh, or, or do you think you know it's the other way around I mean I I, th I think parents always have mm. a challenge to bring up because the next generation the expectations from the next generation are always different because mm. society changes we change and therefore parents have a challenge to create a balance within which uh, they can they can support the growth of their children um, but uh, in the case of let's say diasporic communities uh, the challenge is that much accentuated mm. and I I think as a parent uh, I experienced it uh, and I'm sure many other parents uh, would exp would have done would have experienced it similarly and I think uh, now that we are now I mean I am in the case of Osama third generation uh, you know uh, um, a young person uh, growing up of the post 1947 port uh, a sort of a post uh, um, uh, second world war sort of if you like settler communities in one way or the other in this country uh, so the challenges are of a much bigger and different nature now sure. that this generation faces or parents of this generation face uh, then I suppose uh, mm. you know first generation parents and my generation so uh, Ali do, do you want to touch yes. on, on the different challenges that yes, we face that's here. right I think uh, the talks up here a very uh, professor up here a very important point I don't I think the challenges are not more or less it's just different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay and there were positives at the time of our father's generation who raised us uh, and there were some negatives and there's positives now and there's some negatives uh, and I gotta I gotta I gotta look at the positives in order mm -hmm. to build the next nation I can't look at the negatives and I gotta commend the, the the youth nowadays just as much as we see like we spoke about knife crime and all of this uh, when I was growing up, 
the whole discussion of Tajweed, Mukharij, all of these learning Arabic, uh, it was simple, go to mosque, Alif Bete, mm. it's Abatano. Mm. So these things have improved immensely in our community. I've got to commend the young guys for this. Mm-hmm. They've imposed themselves on the deen. But that doesn't mean to say now that there are no challenges. There are still some challenges. And our challenges are evolved to be different challenges now. So the challenges we have, and uh, maybe to go back to our father's generation when they came here, there were still some religious, even Christian values in this society. And as society has evolved, that moral fiber has evolved, and that moral fiber has been eradicated. So now our challenge is actually trying to raise children to be noble, humble, respectful, have integrity and honor and all of these moral, if you kind of, issues that we look at in a society that is, doesn't have these anymore. So I'd say these are becoming very key challenges well, the uh, in our morality society. The d- definition of morality has changed uh, uh, enormously. Sure. I mean, yes. you know, there are so many sort of, uh, if you like, changes in society Correct. and what is acceptable now was not acceptable Agreed. at all uh, yeah. 50 years ago yes. or even 40 or 30 years ago. And therefore, uh, from a kind of a, a wider British uh, societal perspective, you you could argue that the, uh, uh, the, the, the definition of morality is different. Whereas, I mean, I, I commend, I commend uh, our young generation I mean, in terms of uh, uh, the sort of learned dimensions of, uh, you know, faith and commitment and all that. But I think in other areas, uh, children are much more uh, a summer's generation and people who are <laughs> following a summer's generation much more questioning yes. uh, because they see things around them, yes. whether it is the sort of formal education s- system or uh, I- the sort of peer group, if you like. But I mean, you, yeah. you, you say that, but the, the point I was trying to, I was going to raise Ali and Osama, yes. come in either of you if you want to, uh, is that um, I, I guess there is the, there is the, the, the influences which are learned from observation, Correct. right? Uh, and, and I guess, um, you know, in our time and perhaps Prophet Zephyr's time, and there was that, that influence was a lot more prominent. Sure. So they observed the parents, they observed the family and they behaved in that particular way. And now those uh, untaught, uh, I guess, influences are pretty much on the back foot because you've got influences coming from everything from our handheld devices to social media to television to school so for the parent that challenge right whereas initially in in the earlier days it might have been well okay i only need to teach these skills and the rest of them will be learnt you know kind of subconsciously now you've got a a physical battle because you've got to fight Mm. these challenges you're getting from uh, different areas that's right uh would you say i guess in your uh, from your perspective uh, that's a real threat or not um so sorry can you just uh, yeah so i'm I'm trying to say basically that that there are things that that youngsters learned from their parents subconsciously the parents didn't have to make an effort to teach them yeah right things about moral the way to behave the way they welcome guests into the house and the way they sort of sit sit and chat together uh uh and then now you've got the devices and and you it's a physical fight to actually get them away from that so yeah the what you mentioned is yeah it's correct you know against social media Mm. Um, it's crazy the amount of uh, uh, the pace at how news can can travel today. Mm. Um, you got your videos, you got your Instagram, you got your Twitter, 
Uh, within five minutes, you open up your phone, you scroll through Twitter, you know what's happening around the globe. Mm. Uh, you know what's happening around London, for example. Mm. Now, <coughs> the point you mentioned about there were certain things that we took subconsciously for, for granted, from, yeah. from our parents, right? Um, but but now, I mean, when, when, when my dad homeschooled me and uh, Alhamdulillah, you know, all good is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, um, when he actually he pushed me to start my journey with the Quran, I'll be honest with you. I actually thought, okay, this guy is a bit of a, he's a bit of a, a bit of a scary guy, man. Like, militant, yeah. yeah. he's a bit militant, man. And um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there, there, there's other words I can use to describe, but um, I was actually saying, you know, why, why is he pushing me? And to be honest with you, every morning when I was 12 years old, up until you know, just before I turned 14, every morning he'd 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 um, you know take me for Fajr and I'd say look okay I'll pray no problem I can pray but your dedication to take me to the mosque I actually think that he used to enjoy just waking me up and seeing me <laughs> you know go to the mosque and rubbing my eyes and stuff uh, and then you know t- now I'm 2022 and I look back at it and, and, I, and I actually pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to take me back in those days because you know the the relationship that my dad built me then in fact, I used to go to the mosque and I never used to see no parents taking their children there. And and the point you mentioned, you know, we did take things subconsciously, but my reference point afterwards was, you know what, it's, it's going to wear thin if I just want to please my dad. Why am I pleasing my dad for? Mm. And, and the reason why I please my dad is because fundamentally, if I can put it in, in basic terms, because... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he's told me to, to, to look after my, my, my father. And we know as Muslims that, you know, when you, when you pass away, um, you're going to be buried. And when you put in your grave, you're going to be questioned. And then on Qiyamah, Allah is going to ask you about every single thing you did. And based on that, you know, inshallah, we, we pray all Muslims go to Jannah without reckoning. But, you know, when you fall short, when you fall short, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, um, they say that he's the most merciful and he's the most severe in punishment. So is that every time, you know, I'll be honest with you, they would tell my dad, say, oh, can you, can, you, can you fetch me this or can you go get me some food? And in the back of my mind, I'm saying, I've got homework, I've got this to do, I've got that to do. Mm. And, then I say, and then I said, correct myself, say, you know, Osama, um, there's reward in it for you. Mm. Uh, and there's, there's, a, there's, it's not a hadith. It's a saying. It's a saying, uh, Arabic saying, "Kama uh, tudin tudan." So just how you treat people, you're going to be treated. So when I, inshallah, get married one day and I have children, I don't want my child to turn around and say to me, "Yeah, well, dad, you got more free time, so you can go pick up the the rotis from Shahinan uh, instead of you know uh, me go and I got my homework and I got my Quran uh, as an example." And uh, again, it falls that back down to you know Allah subhanahu wa taala. He's he's watching you, <coughs> uh, and because you know the show initially was based around you know uh, parenting and Quran. There's a beautiful verse Allah subhanahu wa taala. He says in in Surah Isra. He says, "Waqfid lahum ajnaah al-zulli min al-rahma, wa qurrab rahmahum kama rabbiyani saghira." Allah subhanahu wa taala is saying here, and lower your wing of mercy for them. Right, and say, Oh Allah, have mercy on them just how they had mercy on me when I was a child. And, and the reason why Allah has drawn this analogy between the bird, I mean, why did He say, Lower your wing? Only the birds have wings, is because the bird, when the bird knows how to fly, it takes flight and it's in the sky. In other words, the bird has gained superiority over the parents. So one day when you grow up, your parents are going to be old, you're going to be much more fit. Financially, you're going to be much more stable. You don't have to look after them. So when the bird comes and touches the ground and lowers the wing, it's actually there to, to showcase humility and, and mercy towards the parents. Mm. 
So, uh, I, I guess, uh, Ali, um, you might want to respond to some yes. of those. <laughs> but I, I guess one element I picked up from that was, was that, um, I guess, you know, in, in my times and I guess Zafzal's time, getting up for Fajr, yep. right, for, for children was a normal thing because they, they watched sure, their parents sure, do that. Sure. Now, I think many people say perhaps, oh, it's a bit <coughs> harsh trying yep. to get somebody who's seven year mm. old or eight year old mm. to get them up at five in the morning or four in the morning. Yes. Uh, and, and, and those are the things that I'm referring yeah. to when, you know, it's, sure. it's probably the exception that that seven or eight year old kids are basically sort yeah. of caught up. And, That's right. That's uh, right. And, 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 and that, I, I guess, is, is not, not just, um, it's an att attitude change as well. Sure. Because sure. it's much more accepting the fact that yeah, maybe it is, yeah. you know, a bit difficult to. I think it's. Uh, I think there's two points probably I want to make on on the back of what Osama has said. And the uh, the first point is very very uh, simple. When uh, Professor Sab's uh, father and mother sent him to England, okay, they didn't have a webcam to keep an eye on him. Mm -hmm. In fact, when he, they were nurturing him. They were giving him a toolkit to navigate through life. Yes. So we have to give the same to our children, a toolkit. Mm. So it, it does not matter if there's a million of these social media devices. It doesn't matter. Sure. Okay. I don't yeah. care because it's, I've given my children a toolkit. Mm -hmm. So they can navigate through anything now, inshallah, and that's all Allah's mercy. That I'm not really worried about social media because mm -hmm. they have a set of ideas and upbringing that will teach them right from wrong and we <coughs> move forward. Secondly, I think it's also the point about Fajr. I think it's important from the onset, the parent to decide what do they want from their child. Mm, mm. By the same token, I used to take Osama and his younger brother Elias to, to, to the masjid every morning, religiously, 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 4 o'clock. I still know parents who wake their children up at 3 or 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning to get them ready for private school to drive them all the mm. way to London. Yes, yeah, so I said they would they'd quite readily do that. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So it is. It is. And again, I have no, no finger to point to the children. It's all about the fundamental concept in Islam. It's about muhasiba, looking at yourself, accounting yourself to what is it that you want. And it's very true. You 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 plant the seed today, and whatever you plant today, that's the type of fruit you'll get tomorrow. Mm. So it's very much important that I don't think anything's beyond us, or, or, or it's a struggle, or it's whether it's seen harsh or it's a bit extreme or whatever. It's just what is your outlook on that life? Sure. Okay. And I think that's a very important point that that a uh, lot of what you see reflected right on the lives, I guess, of the children is the outlook of the parent as yes. well. So there is. There is there is that subconscious influence, right. right? Regardless of of how much influence there is, there is a subconscious influence. But that influence is dictated by how strong, I guess, sure, the sure. parent is in trying sure. to shape the lives of their yeah. children, really, isn't it? I got I got to admit, Zafar, whilst raising Usama and Ilyas, I had to make some severe changes to my life mm -hmm. because Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in the Quran He says, "Are you of those people who say but don't do?" Mm -hmm. And if you show that to your children, that do this, do this, and you're saying, but you're not doing yourself, there will come a time in their life where they'll see the hypocrisy. Sure, sure. So I had to make some drastic changes in my own life. Uh, so it wasn't like it's natural, it happens. No. Uh, I've done my, my studies, my degree. I've, I, I've done many things, business. I've done the hardest thing I've ever done in this life is raise children. Sure. <laughs> that is the hardest thing I've okay, ever right, done. Let, let's, just, let's just take... 
We're only got about five minutes or so, yeah. Sure. I just want to go around around the table. Uh, let's just take and it is the parenting hour, and what we want to do is is uh, and is the parenting theme from Inspire FM. So what the, the the purpose of that is to try and educate the community sure. really, and that, that's what we're trying to get to. So give me one thing that that you've done. Right, which has been reflected in your children, which you feel satisfied with, and I think that the people need to know about. Uh, to show them that the dean is not insular; mm. it's about being proactive, going out, and ca- and becoming a statesman for the dean in every facet of life. So, how did you do that then? That's a very very bold statement yes. you made. But how how did you do that to, to so, Osama? So, to cut uh, uh, almost a twenty-two year story down to yes. two minutes, yeah. <laughs> it's it's actually. You need, an, you need to become their friend, mm. you need to lead by example, and you need to show them the world is beyond just the Muslim community. Right. Okay. You're going to be an ambassador. Mm. I'm not of the favor of raising children just in a goldfish uh, bowl, bowl. Mm-hmm. because the minute you put a goldfish in an ocean, it starts getting worried. Mm. So when Usam was very young, he had interaction with non-Muslims, he had interaction out there in the real world. I had non-Muslim people I knew. Uh, there was one very close friend of mine, Usama used to visit a lot, go out hunting with and all of the. So it's about bring, bringing out that holy, truly wholesome personality <coughs> that but, can but become an ambassador. But, but I, I guess the risk of that is that you need to be sure of your position before you start. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So, <laughs> give us a, a nugget from your side. Yeah, I think, uh, I hope I I have, um, through example, um, instilled a sense of humility and kindness and also sense of, um, uh, sense of identity. Sure. Um, but I have to say that uh, for me personally, it has not been a, an easy journey sure. um, because uh, uh, by nature, I'm, uh, I'm, as, as some, <laughs> I, I'm not a tyrant like your dad. <laughs> 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 and and uh, so perhaps, uh, I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the father and son dichotomy here and how, you know, the product, your seed, has germinated Absolutely. into a uh, fascinating and and very um, uh, what's the word? inspirational I think uh, uh, outcome. But I, I think um, I'm pretty satisfied that I uh, through my example, uh, children who are humble, uh, who are kind, and uh, um, who would represent. I think me uh, or my values in in Inshallah. if they interacted with the outside world um, sure. uh, through their interaction. So, uh, I, I, I guess, uh, uh, Sam, I guess, uh, uh, <coughs> a moment for you to sort of, you know, reflect and say, what's the one thing that, that you are happy and proud that, that what Father has given you uh, and then you value, really? No, I'm, I'm just happy that, alhamdulillah, you know, my, my dad, when I was a junior, he built inside me a criteria of, of 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 why and how to do things, and and you know you know in Allah's point I obviously he he takes lives when he wishes to take lives. But if my if my father ever goes, um um you know before me, uh, you know I'm, I'll be content that you know what my dad Alhamdulillah he he he's he's not in this dunya no more, but what he taught me Alhamdulillah is going to keep me on 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 the straight and narrow. Alhamdulillah, and then very quickly I think we have probably got a minute or so. In fact, we have one yep. minute minute. Um, how does one a tip quickly anybody how does one 
deal with challenge of a problem child, I guess. Okay, uh, it's a long one, but in next weekend there's a workshop in Dallas Road on parenting. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. So for some quickly, <laughs> not pro- easy. Pro- pro- problem child, not easy. Not easy. No, no single bit of advice uh, you can give. No, I, I would say yes. You love your children. Child Try and right. you do the, your best. Uh, to achieve an outcome which is in the best interest of you as a parent and also sure. your child. I think we're drawing to close. Uh, for everybody who listened to my program today, I hope you found it useful and enjoyable. Uh, the topics were varied. Uh, if I've made a mistake and hurt anybody, I apologize deeply. Uh, and if you've enjoyed it and want to comment, inshallah, uh, do so uh, on one of many forums that we have on social media and telephone and etc. etc. So until next week, assalamu alaikum. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org and follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at inspirefmluton.